Welcome to Dialogues in Afro-Latinidad, a podcast dedicated to amplifying and elevating Afro-Latin American and Afro-Latinx histories, cultures, and communities. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Reed Vasquez. Join us for conversations with experts and artists to learn more about Afro-Latinidad. Venga. I'm delighted to welcome today's guest, Dr. Jennifer A. Jones. Dr. Jones is an Associate Professor of Sociology and Latin American and Latino Studies at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Her research lies at the intersection of the sociology of race, immigration, and politics. Throughout her research, she examines the ways in which race works, which she does by exploring the relationship between categorical description, as in checking a box or how someone is perceived, and meaning-making through identity or feeling a sense of group belonging. She has published extensively in journals and anthologies and is the co-editor with Petra Rivera Rido and Tiana Pachel of Afro-Latinos in Movement, Critical Approaches to Blackness and Transnationalism in the Americas, published in 2016, and author of the book, The Browning of the New South, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2019. Dr. Jones, welcome to the Dialogues and Afro-Latinidad podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So let's, let's jump right in. So you're from Chicago. How do you become interested in examining Afro-Latinx experiences? That's a great question. I feel like Chicago in some ways is a great laboratory for getting interested in race. Um, it's one of those cities that is kind of notoriously both segregated and diverse. It's an immigrant city at the same time that it's got a lot of black history. And if you're fortunate enough to have spent time kind of traversing the city, a lot of those things become intuitively visible to you. Mm -hmm. um, so I think in some ways I was always interested in that. I actually now live in the neighborhood that I was born in Uptown, which has always been this kind of immigrant enclave beginning with sort of white immigrants from Appalachia and then um, African immigrants, uh, Asian immigrants, Vietnamese and so forth. And so seeing these communities um, learn to interact, but also understanding sort of how race shapes the sort of local conditions and politics has always been interesting to me. Mm -hmm. um, and so I thought as a young person that I would end up doing kind of international work through the State Department and uh -huh. policy. Uh -huh. um, and so I thought, always thought of myself as someone who would be a Latin Americanist. And that kind of got me on the path of thinking about race and politics in Latin America and what that would mean. It turned out in the process of doing so, I realized I'm not really so good at <laughs> being the person who executes someone else's ideas about uh -huh. how policy should work mm -hmm. um, and what the best tools are for improving relations in a region or dealing with inequalities. Um, but it did lead me to studying international relations and spending a few months in Cuba in college, mm -hmm. um, which was a really important formative experience. And so all of that stuff kind of stuck. Um, and I was always thinking about it kind of in relation to the things that I was seeing in the US. And so um, my senior thesis work was thinking about the impact of US policies on racial relations mm -hmm. in Cuba. And then in grad school, um, still kind of had some of that stuff in the back of my mind as I transitioned towards thinking about dissertation work. Excellent. And so I know you're passionate. Well, I want to go back a minute. So tell me a little bit about more about your experience in Cuba. When were you there? 
And what were you doing? Yeah, so I was there in 2001. So I was there during 9-11, which was also mm-hmm. an interesting experience. Um, it was my study abroad program. So I was there for four months studying at the University of Havana mm-hmm. and um, <clears throat> studying history and politics with other Cubans and trying to learn more about the history of Cuba, the politics of Cuba, um, why it was that we were so afraid of this tiny island Mm -hmm. (laughs) and all of those complications. Uh, 9-11 also inserted like a whole new set of things that came up because originally, if you recall, Cuba was on the possible list of terrorist suspects. Mm -hmm. Um, So we initially didn't have much contact with the State Department and then we had to. And the process of meeting the diplomatic corps who by state rules, we're not really allowed to interact with Cubans Mm -hmm. um, in a real basis, kind of shocked me in terms Mm -hmm. of how little they seem to understand about the culture and the social norms of the place and Mm -hmm. the lack of integration of those things into their kind of political mission. Um, And I was like, this is terrible (laughs) way to do politics, to do diplomacy. And so eventually over time, like those kinds of fears went away, but that ended up being a really important set of experiences for me to understand kind of the difference between what we think we know about a place and Mm -hmm. the way that it works and how we should actually think about engagements and the difference between sort of, you know, high level politics and people's experiences on the ground. Yes, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm, and I'm intrigued. I'm, I'll hopefully we'll get a chance to talk a little bit more about issues of race because I know that you're really uh, passionate about understanding race and its uh, various permutations and politics and identity. So if you could tell us a little bit more about kind of as you evolved, how you switched from this international relations piece to the sociology arena and uh, your evolution to being becoming a professor. Yeah, um, I think I went into graduate school thinking I would still potentially do work on Cuba. Mm -hmm. Um, And as you know, doing contemporary work on Cuban politics is a tricky thing to try Mm -hmm. to embark on. And ultimately, I decided that um, the risks of being kicked out of the country in the middle of my dissertation mark were a little too high Mm -hmm. and kind of pivoted towards thinking about Latin America more broadly and other ways of thinking about race. Um, that eventually led me to thinking about Mexico, and we can talk a little bit more about that. But um, I realized in that process of like dealing with diplomats and all of that, that I didn't want to craft policy so much as I wanted to be like critically engaged in understanding what policy does. And a lot of the work that I did coming out of college was trying to think about the ways in which Uh, white Cubans and black Cubans have fundamentally experienced different experiences, not just in the U.S., but in Cuba as a result Mm -hmm. of um, our embargoes and our policies and the ways that remittances work and all of those things. And so a lot of that was connected and it meant for um, thinking about Cubans that we couldn't really talk about a singular Cuban experience, that there was a huge difference between being an urban and a rural resident and being an Afro-Cuban and a white Cuban in this context. Um, And that that was not really being thought about, at least in diplomatic circles, it seemed to me. Mm -hmm. There were certainly no, at the time, no non-white people 
very few women in the diplomatic corps to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are lots of ways in which I felt like these were important blind spots that I wanted to be able to dig into more as a researcher rather than um, someone whose job it was to just tell people what to do on the ground or be the person who has to execute that policy. Right. So, so tell me more. So, you, so there's the Cuba piece and this, there's this pivot you mentioned to Mexico. So tell mm-hmm. me, tell us more about uh, this area, because that's what your book is saying. Yeah. So my book comes from that um, work. So I realized that Cuba was probably like just in terms of logistics, not going to work as well. But I was still interested in doing a project that helped me understand the relationship between race and politics and what it meant for race to be made on the ground and process. Um, I think in a lot of ways, the way that Cuban race relations had evolved had everything to do with the shifting politics of the state. You know, there was a Jim Crow regime until the revolution and that sort of upended everything intentionally. Mm -hmm. And then the sort of move away from Soviet Union support and towards the special period, again, kind of upended social relations and race relations in the country. and I, I would argue probably the the shifts now towards a like sort of opening and contracting that we're, that Cubans are experiencing is also changing how race relations matter, but also the sort of like growing black middle class around the world has changed um, the kind of exposure that people have, the kind of diasporic relations and opportunities for tourism and all of that. Mm-hmm. So I was interested in thinking about that in a different context and just happened to Um, do some work with a family friend Uh, here. We have the Mexican Fine Arts Museum and um, a family friend of mine was working on the Africans in Mexico exhibit. And so I went to meet with him and we were talking about um, just what was going into the exhibit, how it was going and how people were responding to it. Um, And it was super interesting to me, one, because no one is taught until very recently about the history of Black people in Mexico. Um, yep. And by recently, I mean like last year. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, I understand. Um, and that uh, Black people were coming to the museum for the first time in a long time and were really excited about the programming. Um, Mexicans less excited about it. I mean, some were, others were really resistant. They felt like yeah. on the extreme end, it was lies right? Because they'd never been told right. about this history, about this presence. Um, others felt like it was a violation of understanding Mexican racial norms, right? We don't have race. We just wow. have Mexican identity. So why are you doing this <laughs> kind of thing? Wow. Um, and then, of course, there were others who were like, I always knew there was something that we weren't talking about. And mm-hmm. now I understand it. Mm-hmm. So I was interested in this and learned in that process that there were, you know, increasing migration. So this was in the early 2000s to both California and the South, um, kind of clustered in certain cities in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and then um, near kind of the Pasadena area and um, other small cities in California. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, you know, this might be a really interesting way to understand how migration shapes race relations, what it means to have a sort of political economic shift and how that might change things in Mexico. 
um, as well as understanding changes on the ground. So I became interested in thinking about the South, which also was going through this kind of massive transformation demographically where you had up until the 1980s, almost no foreign born residents. And by the time we got to 2008, when I started doing my research, it was about 10% Latino in the state of North Carolina and some counties um, and cities were, were approaching majority minority status mm -hmm. because the number of Latino immigrants was reaching sort of 15, 20, 30 percent. Right, right. um, and, and I knew that in some of these cities, many of those newcomers were Black. Mm -hmm. So I was like, great, I've had a perfect experiment to try to understand all of these different angles. Um, and so I started the project by spending four or five months in Mexico because I really think it's important to understand the sort of whole global context, mm -hmm. um, spending time there to try to make sense of how people understood race and race relations right. and blackness and anti-blackness, which was uh, an adventure in and of itself. Okay. And then how that came, how that translated once people arrived and settled in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, in the book, that part of the research doesn't end up being as prominent because it was really the political conditions of being in Southern states during the 2008, 2009 period that mattered more to people um, than the sort of things that they had heard. But folks like um, Sylvia Zamora have done a lot more work thinking about the ways in which um, ideas about race get transmitted back to Mexico. But I've written other things thinking about sort of the ways in which blackness is understood mm -hmm. in a place in which blackness has been denied consistently. Right. So um, I still, those kinds of questions still percolate, right? So how do we think about race in Latin America in yes. a region in which race has been understood in so many different ways in the in recent times? So like over the course of the 20th century mm -hmm. um, that has shifted dramatically and what that means in terms of um, politics, but also, you know, mobility and life chances for folks of African descent. You you mentioned um, adventures of race in Mexico. And I'm just wondering if you could give me, give us a little example of that. Yeah, it was the hardest kind of field work I've ever done because it is really difficult to get people to talk about something that they either think is obvious uh -huh. or they think doesn't exist. And so right. it was a lot of me asking people like, can you tell me about, so I would be in Veracruz in the city, uh -huh. Uh -huh. which has a reasonably large black presence. Yes. And yet it's part of the kind of core of like, it has a lot of political economy. It has a robust tourist industry and people were just like, what are you talking about? All of the black people here are Cubans. And I was like, mm -hmm. that's not possible. Cuba has never sent a huge number of migrants to Mexico. Um, what? <laughs> and and so like, I you would literally say like, but this person is, you know, darker than me and they have African features, like how to explain. And so all mm -hmm. of the, all of those instances would be explained as outsiders. Right. Yeah. Um, That's what I, I've had. I, I have very similar similar <laughs> conversations in Mexico too. Yeah. I I, I yeah. I'm fascinated. It's fascinating. Everyone's outside. Like, Nobody cultural, right. Remnants of this. Right. So the Mimim 
Penguin uh, storyline is really that his mother is Afro-Cuban and that and Mamin is black oh. for that reason. He's oh. not black wow. because his he's descendants of slaves. So this is not, um, which is like an article or a book maybe I'll write about one of these days, right? These ways in which cultural representations um, mm -hmm. appear around race and yet are not about race. So like people often talk about the Loteria game, that there's a black figure in it, but no one knows why or where they're <laughs> supposed to be from because wow. no one thinks of them as Mexican. So uh. I would have those experiences and then I would go to these like small pueblos that were um, kind of cut off, would take like two or three hours to get to and had, but had a heavily um, visible Afro-descendant population. Mm -hmm. And so I would assume the issues would be the same and be like, can you tell me about like whether there are black people and the people would be like, are you blind? Like I'm black, <laughs> you're black. What are you are talking you about? Okay. And so it became this like very, um, it was just a very mind boggling process to try to one, like humble myself constantly because mm -hmm. everybody thought I was an idiot. And also to try to make sense of that intellectually, mm -hmm. um, how you could have such distinct discourses around race within, you know, an hour to drive of, of a place. And so um, I think in the end, I learned a lot to think about, you know, thinking about regionalism. And I don't think that this is unique necessarily. I think regionalism is, is common in Latin America in that perhaps unlike the United States or parts of the Caribbean, black people are heavily concentrated in specific geographic regions that are often cut off from this kind of metropolitan centers, at least until recently. So thinking about Colombia and other places, and that meant that they could sort of develop a national identity that didn't really include black people. And but there was a strong black identity in those places. So you could talk right. about Colombian identity and Afro-Colombian identity, and it was almost like strangers passing in the night. And so that was in many ways what it felt like in Mexico, that if you mm -hmm. were kind of centered in the metropolitan spaces of Mexico, if you were mm -hmm. part of what we might consider Mexico's national identity, if you were linked to these kind of international processes, then you Blackness doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. But if you're, you've been cut off, and you're kind of in your own space, often in places that are close to indigenous enclaves as well, uh -huh. in which you've always been kind of defined as outsiders and differently, then blackness does make sense. Moreover, their ways of understanding blackness come in part through that process of like, oh, I didn't really think about it until I left to mm -hmm. go to Veracruz for school or Acapulco right. to get a job. And people were like, where are you from? Or right. they tried to deport me back to- Right, you're like, no, I'm Mexican. Or some other place, right. right. So um, a lot of that, and a lot of people would make jokes, right? Like, oh, I can just stow away in your suitcase and you can take me with you to the US because once I get there, no one will know <laughs> because they don't know that we exist. Right. Um, right. And so right. a lot of that process was, very confusing at first and hard to stick to, mm -hmm. but I think really revealing about, you know, the socially constructed nature of race and how it works and how it operates in people's imaginations. Um, I haven't had a chance to go back and do follow-up work, but I imagine in the sort of post-census period, there's a mm -hmm. 
there's a different kind of discourse. And so also thinking about all of these things is contingent in a particular time and place. Mm -hmm. So just, just thinking about those distinctions, you know, region and, and mm -hmm. narratives, for your work as a scholar and as an educator, how does you do you think your work contributes or understanding of these of these Afro Latinx Afro Latin American and Afro Latinx communities that you've been studying? I mean, I think that it reveals one that race is a race and blackness and anti blackness are kind of universal projects. But the ways that they operate are very, very different in different contexts in different spaces. Mm -hmm. And so it is important for us to not try to talk about uh, a region without nuance or even a country without nuance or an understanding of um, how identity functions and what its intersections are mm -hmm. without nuance. And so I think, um, I mean, I think there's the initial thing, which is like reminding people that there are black folks everywhere. That's mm -hmm. part of it. Um, and I think that's been a lot of the work over the last two decades for some of us is to just say like, hey, <laughs> this isn't just, there aren't just black people in the US and Brazil and Cuba. And right. even then I feel like people don't always know there's black people in Cuba. So it's true. there's that, but also the ways in which like blackness in the US is not necessarily the same as blackness in Mexico right. and blackness in Mexico is not the same in the Costa Chica as it is in Veracruz. And so while I don't want, I don't think it is a kind of uh, scholarly imperialism to talk about race in all of these spaces. I think it is a scholarly imperative to unpack race in all of these places. And I think it also helps us understand more about the US context. I also think it's a mistake to assume that blackness in Philadelphia is the same as blackness in you know, rural Alabama. It isn't. <laughs> there mm -hmm. are certainly continuities and sort of historical connections, but those day-to-day -day experiences and those relationships with space and politics and mobility mm -hmm. are distinct. And so I think we're we always need to be thinking about what that constellation of meanings are and how they operate differently and what those mechanisms are. And thinking about this constellation of meanings that you that you uh, are prioritizing and unpacking our understandings of race, how does that commingle with what you think are some of the most urgent issues that we that people that Afro-Latin Americans and Afro-Latinx communities need to attend to, especially in the work, the kind of work that you're doing? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. I've been thinking a lot about the ways in which Black Lives Matter has become a global movement. Mm -hmm. um, and I think in some ways, you know, many of those questions are the same in terms of what does the state do with Black populations? How does it treat them, exclude them, uh, marginalize them, mm -hmm. or in some cases eliminate them? And I think that that is true in different spaces. And the answer isn't gonna be the same. You know, in Mexico, it's not, that they're the military or the police are going into communities and holding them hostage and taking people out essentially be, because they've been criminalized. It is more treating them as though they don't exist and depriving them of access to resources that they need to survive and thrive and, and build communities and lives for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't know that there's a singular set of 
issues so much as there is, oh, like we need to pay attention to the ways in which anti-Blackness operates within the state mm-hmm. um, and our institutions and that those problems are existential. And so they need to be dealt with in serious ways. Um, and I think we need to take seriously the process of making people visible. I think in some ways folks have tried, like scholars have moved past that a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that that is necessarily where we are yeah. in that it's easy to avoid issues if you can make it irrelevant that this group of people exists in the first place. Um, and so I don't think the state has given up on that project. <laughs> and so we also should continue to hold them accountable for counting people and recognizing them and including them in their discussions of policies and, mm-hmm. and you know, reforms and procedures. But um, I think those are the things. And then like from the grassroots level, really kind of supporting and thinking about what it means for things like Black Lives Matter to be global movements and how that how that matters in different contexts and what it means to, if you are taking that seriously in the US, um, how you can think about that as a kind of global issue as well. I was also wondering, thinking about as you, as you described the piece from Mexico, how, if that, if that is replicated in the communities you looked at in North Carolina in terms of, I'm just thinking particularly about racial acculturation and um, given that there's a larger proportion of African-American uh, communities in, in North Carolina, and then there are Afro-Mexicans, migrants, com- Americans coming into that space, how is, was, did you see race being reconfigured uh, in ways that w- wasn't happening in Mexico? Yeah, I mean, I think it happens on a couple of levels um, at the time, and I think there's still evidence of this. I think there was a, a shift towards like a broader minority politics. So I think in ways in which Mexicans may have historically kind of aspired to assimilation and whiteness in various contexts, especially as new immigrants, that wasn't what they were doing. They were looking towards, because they this was a period in which, so in some ways, North Carolina was ahead of the curve, so to speak. Mm-hmm. in that they were engaging in kind of anti-immigrant politics, um, lots of partnerships with local police, lots of ordinances being passed at local level to ban folks from accessing uh, resources like healthcare and schools. And so that kind of you know straightforward civil rights violation and discrimination was being talked about in a way in the black community that was being completely ignored Mm -hmm. in the liberal white community and supported in the conservative white community. Mm -hmm. So for Mexicans of all backgrounds, there was a sense that black leaders especially were understanding their position, were not supporting these restrictive laws and and regulations, were not harassing them in the streets in the same Mm -hmm. way, and were kind of supportive of tools and efforts to try to maintain their access to jobs and to schools and to healthcare because that was part of their broader civil rights mm-hmm. mandate. Um, I think for Afro-Mexicans in particular, there was a sense of shared cultural familiarity and also um, a sense of pride, right? So that you had people who looked like you, even though you were from different places right. in positions of 
of power and leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you felt that a lot of people talked about ways in which there was like a South to South kind of shared culture, a value of family, a value of like the barbecue tradition, which mm-hmm. for the Mexican, Afro-Mexicans would have been like a barbacoa tradition of uh-huh. roasting a goat in the yard. And for African-Americans would have been like, you know, a different kind of barbecue tradition, like right. wrecks and ribs and that kind of thing. Uh-huh. But they felt like the sort of, the familiarity was the same, the way that people talked with each other and joked with each other and mm-hmm. were open and warm. They felt, um, they felt that many people felt that from the black community and reported that kind of warmth. And part of this was because they were working jobs with black people. They were going to school with black people. They were living in segregated neighborhoods with black people. And so they had more opportunities to have those kinds of encounters that were neutral or social, um, or, you know, in some cases intimate in ways that they just didn't from white folks who Mm -hmm. were on the other side of town and Mm -hmm. shopped in different places and all of that. Um, And so there was this kind of like dual way in which people were thinking about the relations with Black folks, I think, that was only possible in a kind of political moment in which immigration was also being framed as uh, a race issue, particularly Mm -hmm. around those of Mexican origin. Yes, I'm, I have to tell you, I'm such a big, I'm fascinated and I'm such a big fan of your work, especially the way you, that you connect these, this, these tra- this transnational community and the spaces in which race, races and race inhabits these worlds and are visible and invisible and all these kind of the multi-layered way that you engage them. So in addition to your book, uh, The you. Browning of the New South, you're welcome. Uh, what other specific resources would you recommend to people interested in learning more about this topic or these communities? So. Um, if there are books or films or anything that you would like to just to share with us, um, with the audience about what else can they dig into uh, in addition to your book about um, Yeah, I mean, I think the, there's not a ton of work uh, that's contemporary about Blacks in Mexico. I think Christina Sue's book in which she thinks about, um, particularly Veracruz, will resonate with the whole experience of like, <laughs> the wild goose chase of understanding race. So she talks a lot about that, which is great. Um, I was part of an edited volume um, that looks at sort of the region from various interdisciplinary perspectives um, as part of the Cambridge series. Um, And I think there's a lot of great essays in that book too that help us think about different regions in Latin America and different issues. Um, The book with uh, Petra and Tiana that we edited, I think is also really great in that it also includes um, interviews and poetry and other things. So thinking about the ways in which people are um, kind of doing this work and connecting kind of Afro-Latin America with Latinos in the United States. Um, I actually think there's a lot of young scholars doing really interesting stuff um, that is just now coming out. I would pay attention to the, there's a collective called Afro-Latinas Know, and they're they're all Afro-Latina scholars who are doing really fascinating work throughout the hemisphere. Um, And some of their books have been out for a little bit. Some of their books are in process, but I think um, keeping an eye on those um, really brilliant women and the work that they're doing is also another way to get engaged. And I know they're all also doing sort of writing for the public. Um, I would also encourage people to pay attention to the discourses that are happening in the United States around 
Latinidad. So I think for the first time in a long time, we're seeing people kind of question the premise. So I think in many ways, Latinidad has been constructed through this sort of mestizaje nationalist lens in a way that I think made a lot of sense for a period of time to assert a kind of shared identity. But uh, folks have started to come to understand that it erases not only indigeneity, but also blackness. And so what does it mean to have a concept that you apply to the whole that completely erases and marginalizes this huge chunk of not just the population, but the experience of, of these various places. And so I think, um, you know, those discourses are happening online, but I think it's worth, you know, paying attention to those kinds of dialogues and conversations that young people are having about like, what, what do we want Latinidad to actually look like and what does it mean? And I think it's really interesting being juxtaposed against kind of the post-mortem of the election, which in many ways was like, oh, Latinos are not a voting block. Oh, what happened in Florida? Why did Cubans vote this way? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Mexicans in Arizona voted this e- way. Exactly. And so I think putting those kinds of conversations together not only helps us understand sort of the broad ways in which people under- experience race, um, across Latin America, but also what that means when they bring those ideas to the context of the United States and the kind of political regimes they're dealing with. So I also recommend just kind of looking, paying a little bit more attention to the news in that regard and how how those ideas um, are interacting with one another. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing your perspectives and your research on Afro-Mexicans and Afro-Mexicans in Mexico and and, uh, Afro-Mexicans in North Carolina and broader issues of transnational migration and your passion for this kind of research. Uh, It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure for me too. Time goes so fast when you're talking about fascinating things. So thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Dialogues on Afro-Latinidad, please subscribe to our podcast and tell a friend. For links to the resources mentioned in the interview, visit our website at michellereedvasquez.com forward slash podcast. <laughs>